All right, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsher hanging out with the lovely Mary Goulet. Hello. Hello. Mary Goulet. Richie hey, Ote. What's up, baby? Whiteway's got it under control back there in the studio. And uh, Kelly's got it under control back at headquarters. And we are here hanging out with you and very much looking forward to today's interview where we try to get to as much of the bottom of the... Well, of all the strategies and tactics and shortcuts and initiatives and all the fun things that uh, our guest Stuart Taylor did here to, uh, it looks like both exit for more than $10 million and build uh, businesses that uh, definitely exceeded more than $10 million in revenue. I'm not sure if he's still actively involved, but we will find uh, that out here in just a, a few minutes. But really quickly, I just wanted to share with you guys uh, that the feedback has been really, really interesting uh, and and just really encourage you to continue to reach out for us. Uh, leave your thoughts there. If you haven't yet rated and reviewed and subscribed to the show, please do so because uh, we read every review and, uh, and we do uh, read every email that comes in as well. So you can send uh, an email to feedback at beyond8figures.com and that is the number eight. Uh, as well. So it's just really interesting to hear how this show has been impacting you, how it's opening up your thinking, how it's really helping you to to get a better understanding of how to either start uh, or scale or exit your business. Uh, and just the, the some of the notes that we've gotten uh, in terms of uh, really just in terms of just when you think about it from the standpoint of unless you're exposed to information, unless you're exposed to certain people, you're, you're just going to hit the ceiling of your own limitations. And, and I think what this show is beginning to do for so many, and at least that's what we're seeing in the reviews and seeing in the emails and so on, is that it's just really be, beginning in, in a lot of powerful ways to help people expand their thinking. Uh, and so if we can do that for you, which is to help you see what's possible, uh, and then to share, of course, how uh, entrepreneurs that we bring onto the show here are doing exactly that, then I think mission accomplished. I mean, and I think we're doing exactly what it is that we set out to do here, uh, which has really helped you understand how to make that leap in terms of, well, how do some f- businesses struggle, right, to, to stay at that five-figure level or six-figure level, and how do others really scale to, to eight and nine figures and beyond. So thank you for the feedback. Keep that coming in, and uh, very much looking forward to having uh, a number of incredible folks coming on to the show over the next uh, couple of months. We have some really interesting people scheduled uh, as well. And uh, And speaking of interesting people, uh, our guest today is, uh, I mean, man, I tell you, I'm just, I'm floored by the the folks who have said yes to, to join us here on the show. And Stuart Taylor uh, is absolutely one of these folks that I am just thrilled and honored to be able to speak with here on Beyond Eight Figures. So Wade, let's, uh, let's bring up Stuart right now. Stuart, you there, bud? I am, Steve. How are you? Oh, man, really, really good. And really appreciate you taking the time here to join us. On no, Beyond Figures, absolutely. So, um, have you have you listened to the show? Do you know what you're in for a little bit? Have you? Yeah, I know what I've been for. Okay. I listen to you quite, some, quite often, uh, and it's fascinating, I must say. And I thank you very much for including me. I didn't know whether you wanted somebody who actually grew up under the Hoover administration to talk on <laughs> your group. Everybody now is in their twenties if they're starting their own business. Well, you know, man, and so were you when you started, right? I mean, so it's just it, everything that is old is new again, and so everything that you've been able to do uh, over the course of your career is so much of that is applicable, if not, I mean, even more so today in terms of learning from what has worked in the past and then applying that to uh, what's possible today. So I think there's a lot to be said for what you learned under Hoover and <laughs> and everyone else uh, as you grew your businesses over the years. But let's just get it out of the way early here, please, uh, which is how do you meet the criteria for Beyond Eight Figures? Did you exit a business for more than $10 million, or do you currently run businesses that generate more than $10 million annually or both? Well, I exited two businesses worth more than $10 million, uh, I don't know how much detail you want at the present time, but of course, when I started the first business, I had no idea how it would be successful. Mm-hmm. Today, we didn't have venture capital companies. We didn't have coaches. You were on your own. You had to borrow the money from somebody in the family who was very skeptical you'd ever make it. Yeah. So set up a market research company in London in 1964. And we exited from that about uh, eight years ago at a little over $2 billion. 
So were you still actively – so just just so I'm clear on this, I mean, that's 54 years ago that you started it. Obviously, when, when people draw up exit plans and whatnot, they usually don't have a 54-year timeline. <laughs> was, was that always your intention going in is to just create a business that would serve you for the lifetime of your career? Like did you not have uh, an oh. exit strategy, so to speak? Oh, God, no. We had no strategy whatsoever. I started it because at the time I was in London, I just finished my MBA and I finished another master's at London School of Economics and I was working for a subsidiary of the Economist newspaper mm. and um, I was getting paid virtually nothing and I figured, hell, I can do this. So I started my own market research company with the idea of uh, no idea, really. It's just that I felt that I wanted to do it. I had the passion for doing it. And I got some people around who were probably a lot more competent than I was, and they wanted to do the same thing. But we had no long-term plan of what we were going to do with it. We just sort of uh, worked on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so just so we're clear, because we're going to be talking about uh, a few a, a few different things. So that, that would be Taylor Nelson and Associates, correct? Right. It started as Taylor Nelson, and then it acquired a French company called Sofris and became Taylor Nelson Sofris. Uh, and then we went public on the London Stock Exchange and uh, eventually got uh, merged or bought out by this, um, I've forgotten what it's called, but it's an organization that owns half the market research and advertising agencies in the world. It's a public company in London. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're now part of, uh, of their operation. But um, Cantor TNS is if you want to look it up on the uh, Internet. Mm-hmm. And, and just want to go back to the embryonic stages here then. And, and I know you've been involved with some other things that, uh, for, for lack of a better term, folks would look at and go, ooh, that's sexy, right? Like hard rock and some other things. So we'll, we'll get into that. But I, I want to go back then to the embryonic stages of, of, of Taylor Nelson. So it's you. You're making no money. You're figuring, well, hell, I can start my own thing and make no money, right? So that was kind of the you know the impetus for, for jumping – I guess, making that leap into starting your own business. But take us back through, I just because, again, the principles that applied 50-odd years ago still in many ways apply now, which is the whole process of starting and scaling. What, what did you do out of the gate? You knew you wanted to do market research. You knew you wanted to help some companies. I assume it was just you did you go out and just off like I'm trying to figure out what did you actually package and sell and then what was your first hire and kind of take us through the very very early stages of that business sure well the first thing I needed was some capital and my roommate from Stanford who was English uh, put up a guarantee at a local bank the Bank of Montreal and I had about 35,000 pounds, which in those days was about $50,000. Uh, my background was largely in what we call insurance. I did market research really with industrial companies. I didn't do much on the consumer side. So my first idea was to get a partner on board who had a lot of experience on the consumer side. And that's where Elizabeth Nelson came in. She was a PhD. She was an American. She'd been living in England for quite a long period of time and working uh, as a partner in a large market research company. So she came in and she brought in a few people from her old operation, and that was the core of what we started. And of course, she brought in some business, which, needless to say, got us off the ground in the short period of time, which was key to it. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I certainly would recommend to somebody is if they can bring in somebody who can bring some business with them. Uh, makes things a lot easier, so that's what we did. So let let me and let me just stop you there for a second. Why you? From the standpoint of she could have done this on her own. I mean, it, clearly she was a rainmaker. She brought capital to the table. So how did you convince? Because this is something that I know a lot of entrepreneurs, solopreneurs especially, struggle with, which is bringing someone in who can really help them to scale and grow that business. But why? Why you? It sounds like she could have done this on her own. Well, I think there were a couple of reasons. One, no, she couldn't do it on her own because she wasn't entrepreneurially organized or Mm. operating. She'd worked all of her life uh, after she got her PhD for somebody else. Mm. I had the capital, uh, even though it was loan capital, it was still capital. Um, At that time in the 1960s, everybody thought that the Americans were the only people in the world who understood business. Mm -hmm. So she felt teaming up with another American that we had some kind of an edge. 
And she wanted to get out from under, and she liked the idea of having her own shares in the company. I gave her a quarter of the company from day one, mm -hmm. and uh, off we went together. Mm -hmm. And so, and I just want to make sure I'm clear on this. So, the the thirty five thousand pounds that you raised out of the gate, again about fifty thousand dollars in, in U.S. dollars at this point. But I mean, if we're looking at the, the net present value of that, I mean, it's probably a lot more, probably to the tune of, you know, maybe $150,000 or so is actually what we're talking about uh, in terms of right. real day value around that. So what I'm trying to understand is where, where did that money come from? I thought that came from her, but you're saying it didn't come from her. No, it came from my roommate at Stanford. Your roommate. Well, I gotcha. Very yeah. wealthy Englishman. He put up the guarantee right. at Bank of Montreal and we borrowed the money and off we went. I gotcha. Okay. So... That gave you the opportunity, the luxury, so to speak, of hiring a couple of people. The first hire that you made outside of uh, your your twenty five percent, and and again, I just want to make sure I'm clear. On this. So you you retained seventy five percent of this. You brought her on. You cut out seventy uh, twenty five percent of this. And then as you began hiring people, who were those first key hires? And did you did you have an employee stock option pool? Did you cut off equity for them? What what was the structure that allowed you then to begin to attract talent? Yeah, you got to remember that in those days, people weren't looking for equity. They didn't expect to get equity. But I did cut out another 10% uh, of the company initially for people coming on board. Uh, Elizabeth brought in some people who were working for his, her company at the time. She brought in an office manager. Uh, she brought in a couple of market research uh, people uh, who did all the donkey work. I brought in a company secretary who had been working for the British government for a long period of time, and uh, she brought in our first client, which was the Clark Shoe Company. So that was our team that we started off with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as things began to mature and you began moving through this this process of building the business, so I just want to try to understand where you were. So by 19, let's just call it 1960, uh, are we already doing millions of, of dollars in annual revenue? How, how big did the company get? How quickly? Well, we started in 1964, and by 1968, we were doing maybe a million dollars uh, okay. of business. Yeah. Uh, and our, our strength really came at that time. I discovered I was a very good salesman and a lousy CEO. So I started knocking on doors, and I brought in a, an advertising agency called Charles Barker. And Charles Barker at that time had, I think, the four biggest banks as their, uh, their clients. So uh, the banks needed market research, even though some of them had never done market research. We convinced them all. And that started the core of the growth of our operation, working with Barclays and Lloyds Bank and Midland Bank at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the work you were doing for them, just so we're clear, when you say market research, it was just helping them to understand where the opportunities are. It was helping them to understand maybe new products and programs or services that they could offer to, to grow. What, what was that? What did that work look like? Well, for example, Barclays started credit cards in the U.K. Um, they were the first people, and they jointly did, set up a, an operation with Bank of America and Barclays introduced, really, it was Bank of America, but they called it Barclay Card. And we did a lot of initial research uh, to determine whether the store owners were going to accept a credit card and also what the consumer thoughts were. This they liked very much. And um, in a sense, Barclay Card became the first real credit card in the UK and went on to greater things thereafter. Mm -hmm. And everybody picked up the role. So we were doing a lot of that. We were doing a lot of customer work, not only for Barclays, but Chase came in. Uh, they had an operation in the UK, and we started doing market research company for Chase. And the entree into the banking fraternity also started us working for insurance companies. So we started doing market research for insurance companies uh, mm -hmm. to find out really what products they should be selling, getting them feedback on how people accepted their products, how people accepted their selling operation. Uh, we did a job for uh, uh, Bronson at the time, Virgin, who was just starting insurance, mm -hmm. uh, to whether door-to-door -door insurance would work rather than the traditional ways of working through brokers. So that whole area of finance in general started to grow tremendously, and we 
oh, got up to five, six million dollars pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Can I interject here? This is Mary. Hi, Mary. Hi. So let's just put this in perspective. Back then, you were doing some pretty strong numbers without the Internet. How oh, did you do I- your market research? Was it like sitting <laughs> in the bank and polling customers? I mean, there no. is, where was the research? Housewives. Oh, uh, wow. We used housewives. We had a team of housewives, and oh, quite a few hundred housewives throughout the U.K., who did market research. Now, they only... They didn't do market research just for us. They did market research for other market research companies as well. So the housewife would supplement their income by getting revenue from us for going out, and they were trained. And we had somebody in our organization who would make sure that the quality of the market research was done properly. So they'd go out, and they'd knock on somebody's door, and they'd do a survey. Door to uh, door. Door to door. Wow. Yeah. We didn't use carrier pigeons. We were a little bit more advanced than that at the time. Yeah. But can you but, imagine with how you guys were so smart back then, if you were to start something like this today, if you're consulting with people, the Internet makes it so much easier. Yeah, right. And social media. Well, yes, it does. You know, the thing about the Internet, in spite of uh, Silicon Valley, we still have to deal with people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was nice in a way because you'd get the flavor of a one-on-one contact, even though the... The, the market researcher was going in and knocking on doors, they would give us additional feedback over and over questions, which sometimes were very helpful in uh, to our clients and also in framing new questions in that particular market. So it was a win-win situation. Yeah, we couldn't do uh, a market research uh, project among 10,000 people in four hours, mm-hmm. but uh, there were some advantages to actually having a one-on-one situation between our researcher and the and the respondent at those days. Yeah, and give us a sense of what you were actually selling. So, was it was it a a result, so to speak? Like we will go out and we'll survey X number of people, and it will be ten thousand pounds. Like, just give us a sense of what, because as you said, you're an excellent salesperson, and we can probably get into the CEO conversation here in a couple of seconds or two. But I, I want to get a sense of what you were actually selling, and were you making this up on the fly? Did you go in with set packages? Like, I think this is what a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with is what to actually sell so in this case you were kind of selling an intangible so to speak but it was very tangible so what were you actually selling and how did you price it well what we were selling to a a large extent uh we were selling a feedback from our clients customers at that time virtually everyone in england was uh manufacturing oriented in other words we manufacture we don't have to worry about the market because they're going to buy it as long as we manufacture a good product uh, at a reasonable price, mm-hmm. and a reasonable price was what we're going to make a profit out of. And there was virtually no feedback. Now, we go in, we say, look, we can provide you with information which will then make your product better because you will then orient that product towards the people who are going to buy it. You'll get your pricing right, and you'll get some ideas from the market as to what kind of products you should be manufacturing in the future. Mm-hmm. And they like this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, particularly banks, particularly financial institutions, because they felt, you know, we're providing insurance. If they want to buy it, fine. If they don't, to hell with them. Hmm. We were saying, well, no, mm-hmm. let's try to find out what the market's doing. So what was it? And I just want to make sure I'm clear on this. So how did you price that? Well, we priced it based on a first. We sort of put our right finger into our mouth and put it up and saw what the wind was blowing. <laughs> but when we got more sophisticated, mm-hmm. what we did is we did it on an hourly basis. In other words, the, the actual cost of the employees, plus all the overheads and this sort of thing, doubled it by two and a half times, and that's what would charge people. So the smallest, uh, and, I, and I recognize some of this is probably my minutia and, and way too granular for you to recall at this point, but do you remember, generally speaking, what the, what the smallest uh, offering you had in terms of price uh, at that time and what the, and what the biggest sale it was that, that, that you made? Well, I think at that time the biggest sale we were making is probably three to four thousand pounds. Wow! For a so survey. under ten thousand dollars. Okay. So oh, yeah. God. Wow. Uh, one of the best stories I had was with Mobile Oil, who were one of our big, biggest clients, and they were terrible payers. And finally, I got on to the CEO of Mobile Oil, and uh, he said, "All right, I'll, I'll send you the check immediately," which he did, and it arrived. And a day later, the check which we were expecting a month before arrived. So the attitude was on the part of my 
company secretary who had worked for the government, well, we return the check. And I said, no, we don't. We just thank them very much and say we're crediting this towards your next survey. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he liked that. They didn't want to have the money returned to them. Little quirks like that is what you have to use in order to get a company off the ground. Mm -hmm. yeah. But as things grew, we discovered that the, the real secret to market research is to go out, and, and which gave us leverage, is we do a study for the pharmaceutical industry, um, which we do off our own back, and then we would sell that report to five or six pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. and do a monthly study. We started to do that. We started to do it in the grocery business. We started to do it in the finance business. And what we were selling, instead of individual studies, we would sell them a monthly study of a particular industry, mm -hmm. cheaper for them, and which was better revenue for us because we could sell a whole package. Yeah, we talk about, I mean, so, so often we talk about scale and, and, and how do you leverage what you do in a way where it's not just trading time for money. That's a very early approach. Not only, of course, then as we as we look at where we're at now and in so far as what we call these things, I mean, that's like a SaaS-type structure. I mean, people right. are paying you a monthly or quarterly fee, and they pay you that on an ongoing basis, and you're providing a product uh, that is consistent to, to them and to everyone else who is subscribing to that to, to that report. So, I mean, really, really smart from a, from a scaling perspective. And actually, it probably ties into the question of, okay, so if we're doing in the late 60s, if we're doing, you know, three, four million in sales, which of course is, you know, a nice size small business, you don't get to a $2 billion exit doing three, four million in sales. So let's talk about what you did and what changed for you that really uh, propelled you to, to massive growth. And then what were you doing in revenue when you, when you were able to exit uh, just a short time ago? Well, to start with, the, uh, the easiest way of expanding this was through acquisitions. And there were a number of opportunities that came up, the first one being uh, with this French company, um, Sofrus, mm -hmm. uh, and they were one of the largest market research companies in, uh, in France. And we were starting to look at ways of expanding outside of the UK. I mean, the first uh, market research company I set up was, in, strangely enough, in Salon, Sierra Lanka, what it is now, mm -hmm. company came to us, uh, and the chairman of that wanted to have market research, so we set up a market research company for him in Salon, uh, now Sierra Lanka. But with Sofras, uh, it was an easy out. They were a medium to large-sized market research company, but there wasn't any real way that they could grow except to be acquired by somebody. And people were starting to think now, well, how do I make money out of it if I'm an investor? in this company, how do I going to make money out of it? And the only way is to go public or get acquired. But they liked the idea that if they linked up with us, that we eventually could go public in the London Stock Exchange and the people who had put money into Sofras would be able to get their money out. Mm -hmm. So the series of acquisitions, the biggest one being, uh, I think about 1980, no, it was, early, late, it was seven, the later part of the 70s or early 80s, we acquired McCann Erickson's uh, market research operation for a half a billion dollars, and that put us into the really big leagues. Wait, and let's let, let's talk about that because scale scaling through acquisition is a very powerful way of of growing your, your business, and, and a lot of people for a lot of people, uh, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs especially, uh, think that they have to do it all. And they have to just increase revenue. They have to increase sales. That's the only way to grow your business. Scale through acquisition is a very interesting uh, approach here that that far too few companies leverage. So how? Because this is, a, and, and I'm envisioning this as a sort of the minnow eating the shark. But at that time, is was that correct? Were you kind of the minnow versus the shark here, and you were able to acquire them? And if so. How did you do that, or were you already a larger entity, and then were you already public? Like, I'm just trying to figure out how How did you do that. you got to give Richie a mic here, Wade. Uh, let's well, fire that one up for Richie. But how did you do that? Well, we weren't public at that time. I think it was good salesmanship. I think that um, they were looking for an out. They were looking for a, 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 a willingness to expand. Uh, we had connections in the States, even though we didn't have our own operation. Uh, the French people, the surface people, Felt well, if we link up with these guys, we've got a much better chance of growing as an, an entire entity, as a new entity, than we do by staying by ourselves. 
Uh, also, at that time, uh, Lever Brothers, for example, or Unilever in the UK, uh, had their own market research operation, but they decided to get rid of it. So the tendency on the part of large corporations was not to acquire market research. Uh, it was to use arts outside facilities rather than have their own. So the chances of somebody like Sofris getting absorbed into something which was even bigger uh, was limited. Also, there was a market research company in the UK which we acquired because the owner, uh, who was a former member of parliament, died and there was nobody around to know what to do with it. So the simplest thing was to uh, to sell it. So they sold it to us at dirt cheap price. Mm -hmm. And that brought in a lot of clients that we didn't have previously. And off we went. Did you did you raise capital around that? Like, how do you do the acquisition if you're not like when you, when you are a publicly traded company? You can obviously acquire through stock. I mean, that that's fairly obvious. You know, you, you're a publicly traded company. You have stock. It provides a liquidation event for the investors in the other company. How did you do it without being a publicly traded company? Uh, we used some bank finance through the Royal Bank of Scotland. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when we went public, we used them in order to take us public. Did you provide personal guarantees around that? Was it just, was it, no, uh, no it was not. So it was, it was non-recourse? My old dad uh, told me you never provide a personal guarantee, even for your wife. So, uh, uh, <laughs> We stuck to that. No, it was a, it, there were the only recourse with the assets of the business, which had a very good cash flow at the time, and the cash flow was coming from very substantial companies. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, when you're selling a, uh, a a product which has been packaged and you sell it, you sell it on a year's basis, so you know got you got at least a year's contract. You don't sell it on a one-off basis where they can pull out every month if they want to. They know they're pretty well hooked with us and we're hooked with them, so they'll stay in for a period of time. Mm -hmm. So that sort of, uh, of way of financing it looked good to the banks, and uh, they wanted it to get into something which they thought uh, was new and better. Yeah, I don't want to gloss over that, Stuart. That's really powerful. So what you're saying is you, you ostensibly, when you went out and you sold whatever the offerings were, those offerings were not one-off type offerings. They were year-long type contracts. So you could you could get financing based on the, uh, the well, it wasn't really even just projected income. It was contracted income. So, I mean, that was, that was something that you could leverage. So if you knew you had, let's just say, $100 million in revenue coming in over the course of the next year, then you could go out and you could leverage that by borrowing three or $400 million or whatever it might be. Exactly. Interesting. And, uh, that worked very well. And then, of course, when we went public um, and Royal Bank of Scotland were the investment bankers behind us who took us public, mm -hmm. then the whole thing became a lot easier because then the shares could be traded on the exchange and people could see what was going on and all the rest of it. But market research was from a, you know, a sort of a, 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 a small operation uh, in the UK at that time, uh, practically a cottage industry, mm -hmm. to a realization on the part of major companies that uh, they needed this kind of feedback in order to be successful. So we were the, you know, the fair-haired boys of uh, of the 60s and 70s and 80s, and it helped us grow. Yeah, interesting. So take us through the take us through the exit. Then I mean, and and, and for lack of a better term, though, your liquidity event. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but the majority of your your exit, your your liquidation event, if you will, happened when you took the company public. I mean, being able to then be acquired, I assume, was just at a premium, whatever the stock price was at that point. But your true liquidation event was when you went public. Is that correct? Yes. And how much of the company did you still own as a percentage at that point when you went public? Because you, at this point, let, let's take it back a step. How much were you doing in revenue and how many employees did you have approximately when you went public? Uh, 14,000 employees wow. and, uh, that's throughout the world. Cause we were operating at that time at about 70 different countries. And, um, here again, partly through acquisition, we acquired Gallup in, uh, one of the Scandinavian countries. I think it was Sweden. Uh, and we were, you know, we were sort of picking up bits and pieces of companies in the United States. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We had our U.S. Our U.S. operation going at that time. Yeah, I mean so, you're getting you're getting diluted though at every step of the well. Of the I'm way down then. I, I'm out of it, uh, and uh, I was chairman for a time, and then I got out of it, and I had small shareholding in it, 
uh, enough to justify my being in it, of course. Sure. Uh, and then that was it. And then after I got out, uh, the next stage was there was going to be a merger between the largest German company, German market research company, and ourselves. Uh, and that would have made us probably number two in the world. We were number three in the world before then. And then um, this other group came along uh, with Cantor and all the other bells and whistles that they had. And they made an offer which the shareholders accepted. And that's when we became part of Cantor and part of uh, WWDO. Mm -hmm. And just, again, I, I, if you've listened to the show, you know I like to beat down the details a wee, a wee little bit here. So w when did you actually cash out, though, in terms of at what, at what point... Because it sounds to me like by the time you, you got to that, you know, to that to almost to that last step there on the path, you you only had a, a very small percent. Were you were you were you able to cash out? Oh yeah, I was able to cash out. Yeah. when they were public, I cashed out. You did. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and at that point, ten percent of the company at that time, if I remember right, and I cashed out. Um, you kind of broke up there for one second. So what what was the percentage of ownership that you had when you went public? I had about ten percent. You were, and so that's interesting. I mean, what do you? So, what do you say to those folks who are hesitant to cut off pieces of their company, either to bring in equity or to bring in talent, or uh, yeah, I mean, just for whatever reason, they're hesitant to, to cut off a piece of their company. Here, you were at the end of the day when you went public with uh, just ten percent, right? Well, but, you know, the idea of it at that point is to make money. The idea is not to be. Uh, your ego has got to. Uh, be sublimated in some form or other. I'm finding I, I'm acting as a advisor, coach, whatever you want to call it, to a whole bunch of startups now, and they have fits and, uh, uh, of giving up equity mm -hmm. uh, to people who are going to come in and provide the first large amount of capital they have. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's one good thing uh, if you ever look at um, what's the, uh, Shark Tank, for example? Sure. And these people that come to Shark Tank. Well, Shark Tank, I think, gets something like 45,000 applications or 450,000 applications a year to be on that show. Wow. I think there are somewhere yeah. 500 that actually make it. Mm -hmm. And these people come in and they've got a company with no revenue and they want to give away 4% of the company <laughs> or $250,000 when they're all broke. Yeah. And that is about the most short-term thinking that you can possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. If you can have somebody of the stature of somebody in Shark Tank who actually is going to help you build the company, Christ's sake, give them 25 or 30 percent. Don't worry about what they're paying for. Yeah. The other 70 percent is going to make you a fortune. Yeah. And so when you exited then, and well, when you had the liquidation event of going public, you still own 10 percent. Were you able to hold on to those shares throughout the, the next mergers? And then uh, eventually you still had ownership uh, in the in the two billion dollar uh, merger acquisition, whatever you want to call it, there I, I was out of it completely when we went public in the London Stock Exchange. You did, uh, okay, yeah. yeah. And yeah. we were we were at about a billion four, billion five, I think, then, and then it went up, uh, and we were about two point one billion when the final uh, uh, acquisition or for a merger, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. it's a merger. You own the company; it's an acquisition if they own the company. Yeah. So um, well, I think we were about two point one billion then. Interesting. So, as things move forward, now you're you're out of this. You start moving into a little bit of venture capital and and consulting and helping out other businesses. You got involved with Hard Rock pretty early. Yeah, that was another thing of mine. I got bored uh, with Taylor Nelson after about four or five years, and I found there was no way in which companies at that time could gain any uh, any. Uh, equity or any money at all in order to start. So I started one of the first bunch of capital companies in uh, in the UK, which was part of Taylor Nelson. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I went around and I knocked on all the doors of all the financial institutions in the city of London. And most of them knew me because we were providing research services to them. Uh, and they all liked me and wined and dined me royally, but nobody would put any money up. So I finally found an insurance company up in Manchester and they gave me an initial five million pounds to start off with and would pay all the operating expenses. So, that, you know, it's one of these things that you don't believe it's going to happen. So then you got the money. and What are you going to do with it? <laughs> Which so, is an interesting problem of a lot of venture capital firms. And then you see these well, huge funds and they're going out to raise this money. And now we have to deploy it. Wow. So what well, year what year is this with the with the five million? That was 68. 60. Wow. Jesus. So that's, so we, uh, that's a lot of money. 
So we started off, you know, we did a road tour with uh, the banks. We went to a lot of banks and knocked on the door and said, people are trying to ask you for money. You're not going to lend them. Why don't you refer them to us? So they did that. So the first two investments we made were quite interesting. One was a, a clock company called Fweets and Reed. They were the oldest clock company in the world. Uh, and they were starting to come out with a clock kit for kids. So we funded that. And the other is a lawyer contacted me one day and said, are you interested in scrap, scrap metal? And I said, I don't know. So he sent over the assets of the company, which comprised uh, two battleships, two heavy battleships, two or three heavy cruisers, destroyers, submarines. And they were the scrap metal rights to the First World War German Navy. So mm -hmm. we acquired that and we, uh, I had the third largest navy in the world at one time which was all underwater, of course. <laughs> uh, and then the third one was Hard Rock, which was started by uh, Peter Morton, who was a friend. Right. And so, we put yeah. some money Peter Morton's operation. So, so take us through, uh, and obviously Morton, uh, with uh, Morton Steakhouse and I mean, that, that whole brand there. So, uh, I mean, it's a well-known name. Uh, Peter, Peter is the kid. Is that, uh, am I right on that or am I wrong on that? I forget which. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I'm not sure Morton Steakhouse was, was tied in. His dad was the executive vice president of Playboy. Okay. And Peter came over to the UK and he started a restaurant called The Great American Disaster. Uh, which had pictures of the New York Times, the Hindenburg disaster, Pearl Harbor, all that sort of thing on the walls. Mm -hmm. And it was financed by a guy called Vic Lowndes, who ran Playboy in Europe. And Vic took 95% of the profits, and, Pete did all, uh, and Peter did all the work and took five. Mm. And he was running around, and we had a mutual friend who he was looking for money to start this crazy thing, which he thought we'd call Hard Rock Cafe. Uh, so we did, we put up some money for that and we got out of it at a fairly early stage. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, we did very well out of it, but that was fun. Yeah, I bet. And so now I know you do a lot of consulting and you, and you still have a venture capital firm. Is that, is that correct? Or are you out of that as well? No, I, uh, most of my money is in outside of the country and with the tax structure, I don't bring it in. I, I've got some money in some fees some operations at the moment and I'm waiting to for fruition either I'll be out of the off the planet or the the things will provide some money to me before I go mm -hmm. but uh, I'm still working with I just started a uh, we have an old expression in the entrepreneurial world taking a, a line from Douglas MacArthur you uh, old entrepreneurs never die they just start a new business so I've started mm -hmm. a, a new business where we're doing coaching and I'm providing a boot camp for people who want to start a business. I, I've taken Guy Kiyosaki's uh, video course on uh, starting a business, and I'm using that as a textbook. In other words, in the old days when you professors, they would use a textbook and they would teach from that. I'm using Guy's course instead of a textbook. Mm -hmm. And then I provide one-on-one -on -one help for a period of time after that. And uh, I'm only taking on 10 clients. But uh, I still want to keep the the juice is going, and I still think that, uh, in spite of my age, that I've got a life to offer to people who uh, want to start a business and want to develop a business. Yeah, for sure. And it was interesting because one of the questions on our application uh, is, what advice would you have for an entrepreneur who wants to create a, a $10 million-plus business? And what was your answer? Do you remember what your answer was? Uh, I don't, but the answer is to get about the $10 million, just start the business. And of course, depending on what kind of a business is, the market itself will determine whether you're going to be a $10 billion business or a $1 million. But I think I just make one point. A lot of people who do start a business don't think about really what they want out of life. Uh, they're too caught up in doing another widget and all their friends around them at the same way. And they don't take time to really think it through and they don't take time to talk with their their, their partners mm -hmm. and particularly their their romantic partners or their wives or their husbands or their uh, significant others working as a team so that everybody understands some aspect of what building a company is all about mm -hmm. so they don't get worried when your husband comes back uh, you know at midnight every night and leaves at 4 a.m. in the morning because he's starting a business mm -hmm. Yeah, point point well taken. I mean, your your specific answer was if you want to if you want to start a, a ten million dollar or get to a 
having a ten million dollar business, you you need to to create a twenty million dollar business, right? So I think part of the <laughs> part part of the thinking around that is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, do do you think that most entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, et cetera, I mean, do, do you think that they're just aiming too low in general? Uh well, I think they're too concerned with with the numbers and not concerned enough with the business. If the business the bill grows and they see that it's growing, then they should take the opportunities to make it grow bigger, better, and faster uh, with minimum risk. Uh, so if you see that your business is starting to grow and you're up to two or three million, uh, you've got a decision to make. Do you want to build it bigger or do you want to get out? I was talking with somebody at friend up in Silicon Valley recently, he started a business with $200,000 and 18 months later, he sold it for $4 million. Mm. Uh, there are opportunities around because uh, people like Facebook and Google have more money than God. Yeah. And they're looking for opportunities. And that's something that you have to, that's why I'm getting back to, you really have to understand what you want to do in life. Uh, do you want to grow something and, and get enough money so that you can retire at the age of 24 or do you want to stay with the business or do you want to go on and start another one and think this through because there are so many opportunities now which i never had and so many ways you can get out of a business and make money that is just unbelievable mm-hmm. well let, let, and let's talk about that for a second because obviously you've got your pulse on uh, on a lot of what's going on in, in many different facets of the business world right now what what are some of those exit options because here on the show we try to help folks from a from a start perspective or from a scale perspective or from an exit perspective, depending on where they're at on their journey. What what are some of those other options that you're seeing from an exit perspective right now that perhaps we're not considering? Well, obviously going public, but there is more paperwork involved in that than there is in virtually anything else. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Of course your, your whole business is going to be looked at by an in, the government and entirely different people than it was heretofore. So a lot of things you might have been able to get away with uh, before, and I don't mean illegal things, but yeah. things that restricted you, you can't get away when you're going public. Um, I also think you can use debt. There are a lot more opportunities now uh, to bring in debt than there were in uh, in the days when I was starting. I mean, people are actually looking for companies where they can lay, lend large sums of money. I've had, I must get two or three opportunities a week from companies who are looking to lend money to companies who are in the, not necessarily the startup position, but they're in a, in, in a position where they're looking around for uh, uh, round one of their, their financing. And debt is a good way to go because a lot cheaper if you can sustain the debt payments uh, than it is to sell your equity because mm-hmm. people are going to buy the equity. They're going to try to screw you down to half of what you would like to have. If you can build it up with debt and then sell the shares, you're going to be much better off. Mm-hmm. Can can you share a couple of examples of different debt structures? Because I know that there are, I mean, like there's convertible debt. I mean, there's notes. I mean, there's like there's different structures. What what are you seeing out there as viable options? And 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 if you could recommend one of those structures, wh- which do you lean towards? Well, I think um, a good example is I find in Southern California. I've just moved down here in the last year. Uh, they like convertible debt. I I don't. Uh, I, I see no purpose in it. If you're going to lend money to a startup company, um, why? Do you, well, first, why do you want to lend? Why not take shares in the company? If they don't lend you shares, well, then just take plain, ordinary, old-fashioned debt. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow or other, they seem to f- figure down here that uh, they're going to get more out of a convertible basis from the the, uh, the investors, and they will out of a straightforward debt. Well, that's not true. You can really determine pretty much what a company is worth after a few months when it starts to get a little revenue in. And I would go for probably selling a hunk of shares at that time or trying to do an SBA loan or some of the other people who are providing debt financing um, to um, in order to bring in money. Mm-hmm. I found a way I'm trying with a company down here. There's a company that's starting and it's doing... It provides a complete package operation to small uh, hotels, motels, uh, where it'll go in and rehab the whole place. And a lot of these motels and hotels cannot get the money for it. But if they go in and they borrow the money using the hotel as a second mortgage and they control the money, it builds up their uh, track record as lenders. Mm -hmm. 
money is secured by the second deed of trust on the motel operation, and they can go to a motel and say, look, we'll provide the money, uh, and you just re repay it to us over three or four years. In the meantime, we will do all the work for you, and you should increase your revenue, and that will give you sufficient capital in order to repay the debt. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So creativity, uh, as folks are looking to to scale their businesses, how how important is it in, in your way of thinking to look outside of traditional channels from uh, from a creativity standpoint, whether it's in terms of personnel, whether it's in terms of uh, capital, and just uh, as I think you're proving here, uh, there, there's just no one way to, to do this. So uh, just talk about creativity as it relates to, to business growth. Well, anybody who starts a company thinks outside the box from day one, and he should think outside the box all the time that he is involved with that company, whether it's on financing it, whether it's finding people, whether it's on finding new markets, whether it's on finding new approaches to those markets. Mm -hmm. uh, it's absolutely key that he doesn't get structured into a, a feeling of, well, we've made it now and we don't really have to do anymore and we'll just sit and wait for Facebook to buy us out. Uh, you should always be looking. And I think the, the founder, uh, in many cases, should be out as chairman of the company looking for new opportunities rather than running the company on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think Facebook is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. It's got a first-class uh, chief operating officer, and she runs the company on a day-to-day basis. And I would think from day one that if you really are a creative person and you start a business, you may not be a good CEO, but you may be a damn good person on growing that business and finding new ways for that business to, to grow and operate and leave the day-to-day -day running to somebody who likes doing that and is possibly better than you are at it. Yeah, and I mean, that that's actually what you did as well. Then you found that you were not the best CEO, but you were a damn good salesperson. So how early on in the process, because we, we kind of, we talked about it. We brushed on that just uh, a little bit earlier, but yeah, you didn't get specific in terms of when that actually happened. How, how early in the process was that? About my sixth year. Okay. Uh, I, I was being nudged probably by my fourth year, but my ego wouldn't let me accept it until about the sixth year. And then I, I really began to realize at first I didn't like the job. And secondly, I was much better to do my thing and, you know, to, to set up venture capital company or set up something else under the umbrella of what we were doing and let somebody else run the business who were much better at doing it than I. Mm -hmm. Actually, the person who turned out to be CEO wasn't even Elizabeth Nelson. Uh, it was somebody that she brought in who was a market research analyst who probably didn't have the slightest idea that he would be a good CEO until he started to mature and started getting more involved in the administrative side of the business. Interesting. So. As we look to, to wrap up here, Stuart, and really do appreciate your, your time today, uh, whether it's relating to starting a business or scaling a business or exiting a business, what, uh, where would you like to chime in in terms of your, your wisdom and, uh, and, and share some advice that could uh, really help some folks who are uh, in one of those three camps? Well, I think one thing, I've just done a market research study among uh, my contacts at LinkedIn to find out what the attitude was towards coaches, for example. Um, I think it's crucial that anyone who's developing a company has a coach. I think if you're starting a business, you've got to have a coach who's actually done it. There's an, it's not good having somebody who's been executive vice president of IBM who suddenly comes in as a coach on startups. Mm -hmm. The mentality mm -hmm. is entirely different. Mm -hmm. Secondly, mm -hmm. I would keep your mind completely open to what other opportunities there are available to you. Uh, keep your ego out of it if you can do that, uh, because what's important is not you. What is important is the growth of the business. And once you start <clears throat> having a payroll that you're responsible for, you're responsible for other people and other people's livelihoods and their children and all the rest of it. So keep that in mind. And if you can get somebody to come in and help you on that, do it. Mm -hmm. And be flexible. Keep an open mind. Uh, grow the business. Uh, do it ethically, morally, uh, get your structure right, and let it go because, frankly, you'll have a lot of fun, and uh, the money side of it will come if you get the business right. Mm -hmm. And while we have you, and this is a, a subject that we haven't tackled before here on the show, but we've just got a, a few minutes left here before we have to wrap up. And if, if you're comfortable sharing this, because I know this is something that uh, that is, is talked about in small circles but not really publicly, 
you know, it's interesting. You, you had talked about how uh, you were able to exit and how a lot of your capital is deployed, actually, uh, or at least held, uh, not here in the States. Just from a – if someone is in that position where they have been able to exit their business and they are now sitting on uh, more cash than they've ever had in their, in their life, what what do you recommend insofar as structure? Because it seems like you've been able to – look at this pretty deeply and we have not tackled this yet, but what would you tell, uh, tell someone who came into a significant amount of cash and just in terms of where to house that and how to handle it? Well, I think the first thing is I'd give a large portion of that and you can work out what your own particular needs are so that you don't have to worry when you're 85, uh, about the income coming in to keep you going. Uh, so I would structure that with, there are hundreds of very good, uh, fund management companies around, uh, I would take a percentage of it. If you enjoy working with startups, I take a percentage of it uh, and use that for uh, uh, for helping other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would take a percentage of it. Uh, I'm very much involved in charitable organizations, and I'm particularly involved in startup charitable organizations. So that's something which the funding could be used for. So compartmentalize it. Make sure that you and your family are set first, and then what's left over uh, use in a way which will make you happy. And that happiness may be uh, in the form of starting businesses or helping businesses. Look at ways in which you can help charities. Uh, Stanford, for example, uh, relatively recently are now doing MBA with an emphasis on people who want to run charitable organizations. So the whole uh, area of charities and something is, is something a, you as a successful entrepreneur can, can do a lot of good for you. Mm-hmm. But if I'm reading between the lines, I think you're saying that some of that in terms of taking care of yourself, taking care of your your family and so on, some of that you've actually then, would you say that you've stored that offshore? I mean, just I'm trying to figure out just in terms of that structure. Well, I store it, but don't get worked up about the offshore bit. It's because I made a lot of money when I was in Europe. Mm-hmm. And it was easier to keep it there than to bring it into this country. I mean, it's all done legally and all the rest of it. Uh, offshore, in some respects, has got a, a very negative uh, yeah, heuristic. Uh, but it happens to be with Barclays, and you know they they run it the same way that Barclays would in the states. Yeah. Um, but it's um, it's just a question of make sure that you and your family are all right first, and then play around with the rest of the money in a way that makes you happy and where you can do some good for other people. Mm-hmm. And the work that you're doing now in terms of helping uh, as far as startups and coaching and that sort of thing and taking on your 10 clients a year, uh, if people want more information uh, around that work that you're doing uh, in, in that realm, uh, entrepreneurshipforyou.com, is that the best place for them to go? Yeah, if they take a look at that and uh, if they're interested in uh, – in working with me, as I'm working with him as a coach or coming into the course, uh, we'll talk on the phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to take anybody on after I, until I've had at least a half an hour discussion with them on the phone because I want to make sure that they're prepared for all this. And mm-hmm. I want them to be a choosy about what kind of a course they're going to take as I will be about what kind of a student I want to have. Yeah. And are you are you uh, in some of those companies, I think you said, that you are also making personal investments if uh, the opportunity is right? Yeah, but uh, don't count on becoming a student and then I'm going to put X amount of money into your company. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. But um, if your company really is, is is looking for finance after we get through the course, I would do everything I possibly can to make introductions with VCs or other sources of funding to, to keep you going. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. want to see you fall flat on your face upon completion of a course. Yeah. Make yep. me look good. doesn't make you look good. All right, Stuart, really do appreciate your time today, and uh, we know that you're a very very much a man in demand, so for you to spend this much time with us here today on Beyond Eight Figures is absolutely appreciated. Take care, and uh, best of luck to you in the future endeavors as well. we got to jump here on Beyond Eight Figures. So for Mary Goulet and Richie Ote, I am Steve Olsher. We'll talk to you next time here on Beyond Eight Figures. Take care, everybody.